Hello again. This is Gary Meese with the case against. We've spent quite a few episodes talking about the failure of Jesse Miskelly Jr.'s alibi. Uh, but we're finally through that and we're going to move on to. Uh, and, and I think anybody who listened to all those will understand why most of the people who've covered this case simply glossed over all those details because it is very detailed. Uh, there's not a consistent thread that runs through there, which is exactly the problem for for an alibi. There's, there was absolute lack of consistency, and then then there was documentation, combination of documentation about the wrestling trip that discredited that at trial, and testimony of uh, law officers that discredited the police visit alibi. So altogether, Jesse had. He had no alibi at trial that worked, and furthermore, he had no uh, uh, alibi in fact. I'm going to go on further with, uh, and skip ahead really to uh, what happened after uh, Jesse's trial and Jesse's sentencing. Uh, as many people who follow the case know, there were confessions that came after he was sentenced. Uh, you don't know that if you watch the documentaries. Just like you don't know many, many things about Damian Eccles, including his whole history of uh, except for some brief allusions to mental health problems, you you have no you get no detail about what his mental health problems actually were, and even his history with uh, the occult is glossed over to a large extent. So, and that's less less well documented, but it's certainly it's 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 there and it is documented. It's actually documented in Exhibit 500 over and over and over again. But you have to dig it out, and some of that it's hard to decide: is he playing some sort of occult game, or is he actually crazy? Mm, probably a little bit of both. Uh, they, those two things, just fed off each other, and they're still feeding off each other. You know, he he had a video, uh, he had a YouTube tape about. Uh, his love for Aleister Crowley that he just released the other day. Anyway, we're going to get into a chapter from my book, Where the Monsters Go. It's the second book in a two-volume set. The first book is Blood on Black. Uh, I revised, condensed, squeezed the whole thing, heavily edited those two books down into a single volume called The Case Against the West Memphis Three Killers. All those books are available on uh, Amazon in Kindle format and also in print format. Uh, let me...
let me uh, get into this. Uh, oh, I'll, I, I want to give you a little background on the case. Um, pardon me if you've heard this a hundred times already, but maybe you're tuning in for the first time. This involves the case of the West Memphis Three, uh, Damien Eccles, Jason Baldwin, Jesse Miskello Jr. They were convicted in 1994 of uh, murders in, in, on, uh, on May 5th, 1993 of three eight-year-olds. Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers, and Michael Moore in West Memphis, Arkansas. The little boys were found. Uh, they'd been tortured, cut up, bound, thrown into a ditch in uh, a wooded area near their homes called Robin Hood Hills. There have been four documentaries made about uh, this case. Three Paradise Lost movies on HBO and a movie called West of Memphis with that had heavy input from one of the killers. So you can judge for yourself how objective that would be. Uh, it's very long. It has a very long history at this point. The case does. It continues to be very controversial. Um, there were several television uh, specials recently with the Oxygen Network and the ID Network that absolutely misrepresented the case and what it was all about. But that is typical. They just basically replayed the Paradise Lost playbook. And why not? It's simple. It's easy. It doesn't require a whole lot of thought or, or effort. And, uh, and so you're going to get the same homogenous sandwich that you've been getting. It's a crap sandwich, but it's, it, it's thrown in enough uh, flavorings over the years that you really just don't notice the taste because you, you've, you've been eating it for so long, you really don't realize what it is you're eating. And I have to say it, but it's not, it's, it's not true just in this case. This, this is not an isolated case in the sense that a lot of what you see in these true crime documentaries is simply not what happened. And you can throw in a lot of the fictionalized versions of these cases. Uh, I watched an old movie from 1995 about the McMartin case with James Woods. I think it was called indictment just yesterday. What was it called? Indictment. Anyway, uh, it just left out a lot of facts in that case. Uh, there was good reason to think there had been some child molestation going on there. It's just that it, uh, the combination of mishandling of, of how the uh, mishandling of the case by therapists, by the police, etc., um, it got so and the courts did not really know how to deal with child victims. I mean, yeah, testifying, uh, the whole thing got out of hand when really. Uh, But it was not, there was no, it's not, it was presented as if this was just almost simply just made up out of thin air. And there, there was a, a reason for a criminal complaint and a valid one. 
It's just that it got blown up way beyond what it should have. So sometimes there's wrongful convictions and sometimes people are wrongfully not convicted in case you haven't noticed. Also, some people are wrong, wrongfully indicted, and that was certainly the case in the McGartan trial. I would never argue otherwise. Anyway, this is a chapter called, They Were Like Puppies. When you whoop a puppy and tell it to stay, it will. Uh, the Miskelly case went to the jury late in the afternoon on February 3rd after seven days at trial. The jurors reached a verdict shortly before noon the next day after about two and a half hours of deliberation. Jesse Miskelly Jr. was convicted of first-degree murder in the death of Michael Moore and second-degree murder in the deaths of Stevie Branch and Christopher Byers. He was sentenced to life in prison plus two 20-year terms. Uh, Miskelly's conviction ultimately was affirmed on appeal in a unanimous, unanimous decision by the Arkansas Supreme Court. Miskelly freely talked about his role in the murders to two officers transporting him to prison on May 4th after his conviction, verdict, and sentencing earlier that day. Clay County Sheriff's Department deputies John Moody and James Lindsay sent the report on Ms. Skelly's statement to Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell with the West Memphis Police Department, which is, that's who investigated the case. Some names were misspelled and there were other minor errors. Uh, John Moody wrote, the following statement is a narrative as told to Deputy James Lindsay and myself. This statement is not in chronological order as it was given by Jesse, but has been put in order to the best of our ability with knowledge of your case. Your department may have knowledge of this in its entirety. If not, maybe it will provide a little insight as to what took place on May 5, 1993. Uh, this says jail incident report. On the afternoon of February 4, 1994, Deputy James Lindsay and myself were transporting Jesse Miskelly to the Arkansas Department of Corrections at Pine Bluff. Jesse was asked if there was anything he wanted to say, and after being assured we could not use anything he said against him in court, he chose to talk. Jesse advised he had received a call from Jason Baldwin asking him if he wanted to go to West Memphis to, quote, get some girls, unquote. Jesse, Damien, and Jason met on a local road on May 5th sometime that evening. Uh, Jesse claimed that he had been drinking, he calls it Evelyn Williams whiskey, that Mrs. Hutchison had bought him. <coughs> and Jason and Damien were drinking beer. It was also stated they had smoked two marijuana joints that afternoon. Jesse said that he had known Jason Baldwin since the sixth grade and did not know Damien that well, but that Damien would drink human blood, remembering a time when Jason was bleeding and Damien took some of the blood with his finger and licked it off. Uh, Jesse stated that Officer K. 
Callahan had lied in court about not seeing him May 5th. Uh, Jesse claims they had a short conversation. After all meeting on the road, the three boys, and that was the officer that said he wasn't there at the police call. After all meeting on the road, the three boys walked to the woods and were sitting in the water with Jason and Damien going under. Jesse said he could not go under because of his ear problem. The three young boys were seen from a distance when Damien told Jesse and Jason to hide. Jesse said they were hiding behind bushes when Damien grabbed Michael Moore. The other two young boys started hitting Damien trying to help their friend, and that is when Jesse and Jason jumped out and helped Damien beat them. Jesse advised he helped hold them and beat them, but he had no part in raping or killing them. Jesse advised two of the boys were raped from behind before and after they were tied up, and that Damien and Jason were taking turns with the two boys. Jesse said the boys were still alive at this time. Jesse said the boys were kept quiet by putting hands over their mouths and that Jason and Damien had used shirts and that times their face was pushed down into the ground. Jesse was asked how the boys were kept under control while being raped and not tied yet and he stated, They were like puppies. When you whoop a puppy and tell it to stay, it will. Jesse did say he had to catch Michael Moore, but did not say at what point. Jesse claims that the third boy was never raped, but that he may have been the one that Damien took his penis and put it in his mouth, referring to the young boy's penis. Jesse said at one point Damien and Jason had one of the boys in a headlock with one he believed had his penis in the boy's mouth, while the other one had him from behind. Jesse said he did not mention the ears to police, only a headlock. And as an aside, the, there were bruising and damage to the ears that made it look as if the boys were, the ears were used to control the boys. And this was the described as a technique used by child abusers to control boys, and particularly regards to forcing them to perform oral sex is disgusting as <laughs> disgusting as that all sounds uh, anyway uh, Jesse also mentioned that sticks had been used to beat the boys at one point Jesse said that J Jason had a buck type locking knife and quote cut it all off and threw it into the weeds Unquote, saying the boy was alive and tied at this point and that he was surprised blood did not get on him because blood went everywhere and he was about a car length away, which is about right based on what they can see at the uh, disposition of the bodies and disposition of the blood, what you can see at the scene. Jesse said they threw him into the water and he was still squirming around in the water, at which point he left. Jesse said he does not know what happened to him. And that's an argument that gets to whether uh, Christopher Byers was alive. Did he bleed out on the bank? The, the argument is goes on about whether he drowned or not. Medical examiner said no. 
There have been assertions since that he did drown. Uh, there was evidence that he died of other causes than drowning. Uh, among, and it's clear by examination of the tissues that he bled out and that this did not occur in the water. There was significant blood. There was significant blood found on the bank, and subsequent luminol testing that was not evident at the time, because Damien and presumably Jason, and who knows who else might have showed up to help out, um, not making any allegations of anybody in specific, specifically, but there are some possibilities there um, to c help clean up the mess. And he had quite a bit of time to do it. Um, anyway, the, the, the question is whether uh, Chris Byers was alive or not when he was placed in the water. And this would indicate if his legs were kicking around and he was squirming, uh, yeah, he was alive then. Uh, there are indications that he wasn't. I am going to go with the reasonable supposition that the medical examiner was correct and that Chris, Chris was essentially bled out at the scene. And what Jesse is re remembering is one of the other two, the other two boys were actually drowned. He's remembering a boy, a boy thrashing around, but it wasn't Chris Byers. Um, the other two boys were drowned. They were alive when they were placed in the water and there's no reason to, particularly to think that they may not, one or the other may not have been kicking. Um, but we, you know, we really don't know for a fact. We do know there was blood on the blank. We do know, we know what we know, stated the facts. The facts don't suggest that, that uh, Stevie Branch was alive when he was placed in the water. So he wasn't drowned. Uh, Jesse said he does not know what happened to the knife. Jesse said he believed the other two boys were not conscious when he left, but were not in the water. Jesse also stated, and which is again is an argument against against the idea that. Uh, uh, it was another boy who was placed in the water that Jesse remembers. Let's, let's remember that Jesse Miskelly Jr., according to his own statements, had been drinking this Evelyn Williams, Ev Evan Williams whiskey that Vicki Hutchison had purchased for him that day. That she confirms that she purchased for him that day, which is very telling and incriminating detail. And, and she had to search her memory to remember what brand it was, but she came up with it. So it's not something that she concocted or that she uh, was using to claim a reward or something like that. There were no rewards for her participation at that point. Anyway, um, Jesse also stated that Jason called him later and asked him why he left. And he told them he could no he could not watch it any longer. He claims the only other contact with Jason and Damien were a couple of times at the skating rink, but they were mad at him. 
And we do know that Jason and, uh, I mean, that Damien and uh, Jesse were both at the skating rink the following Friday because there's videotape that shows them there. Jason's probably there someplace. It's just not real obvious where he would be based on that videotape. We also have statements from people that they were together then, and we do know there was some acrimony between uh, Damien and Jesse over some things that went on at the skate at the um, skating rink and pool hall, bowling alley, etc. Because of things that Jesse Miss Kelly had done, uh, and uh, had blamed tried to get Damien blamed for. Uh, other information, Jesse claims his lawyers asked him if he was innocent and that he lied to them. Jesse said the boys had a clubhouse and that's why he thinks they were in the area. And that is accord with what Aaron Hutchison said, that they had a clubhouse, though there was no real evidence of a real clubhouse. You're talking about a bunch of little boys going into the woods. I can tell you when I was that age, we had woods close to us, a wooded lot that was just two, you know, two lots over, and we would go in there and we would build forts and we would build, uh, yeah, pretty much we built forts because we were watching westerns, so you know, we, we were worried about the Apaches attacking at the time. Though in a, in a pinch, we could convert the. Fort Apache over to, you know, an al- being part of the Allied troops and fighting off the Nazis, but whatever. Boys do that sort of thing. At least they did. I don't know what they do now. Uh, when, anyway, they had a clubhouse, and that's why he thinks they were in the area. When talking about the meetings they had, and he's talking about these satanic meetings that he had described to uh, police, Jesse could remember about nine people showing up, and at one particular meeting, Kent and he'd be referring to um, Ken Watkins here, probably was to bring a dog as his treat. The dog was taken away in the woods where it was killed and skinned. The dog was brought back and cooked in something that looked like Crisco in a washing machine type bucket. Jesse said he eat a little one time and got sick. Kent was to catch the dog at the trailer park and Jesse believed he had they killed about four dogs altogether. Jesse said Jesse Jason and Damien would both have sex with Dominique, not just how it's described here, at these meetings. That would be Dominique. Uh, Dominique and Jason really didn't care for each other, so it's really questionable whether that would have been going on, but who knows what Damien could have pulled off as far as talking. He was highly manipulative. There's no reason to think he perhaps could have talked them into something like that. Uh, Jesse said he lied about the time and the rope to trick the police and to see if they were lying. Okay, 
this is great. This goes into his confession on June 3rd, which consistently gets criticized and discounted because he tells, gives the wrong times and because he describes the boys being tied up with rope. Here, Jesse, and these troopers really didn't know that much about the, uh, they are troopers, aren't they? Oh, they're deputies. I keep thinking they're troopers. These are, these are sheriff's deputies. Uh, these deputies really don't know that much about this case. Uh, but Jesse is saying that he lied to uh, the police the two big notable lies, obvious lies, and his June 3rd confession because he wanted to, quote, trick the police and see if they were lying. Now, I don't know if that was that clever of Jesse to do that. They weren't particularly, those weren't particularly, that wasn't a particularly cleverly it's a clever ploy in the, in, as far as a general strategy, but the specifics are really lacking. Could have come up with something else uh, because the times were very clear and the, the matter of the rope was very clear. And uh, the only thing that Jesse might not have been aware of was the shoelaces being used. Uh, but he would have known that if he were there he later describes helping tie the boys, so he knew shoelaces were used. So he was, if he was throwing out the rope as a test for the police, I, I, does, it, does it really make sense he's testing the police about what they know concerning something like a rope? I, it's not very, the whole thing's not very smart, but then guess what? Jesse Miskelly Jr. is not very smart. Um, back to the police, the statement from these uh, deputies. Jesse says he feels the other boys tricked him into what he did. Yeah, and it does, you know what? It, I think that's a reasonable premise. I think Jesse went out there with the idea that, oh yeah, we're going to beat up some boys. That sounds like fun. That sounds like something I'm, I'm into. I like lording it over uh, smaller kids. I have a history of that. Uh, but I'm not into killing kids. I'm not into cutting them up, drinking their blood, which there's no evidence. There's none of his statements say they drank blood, but let's, and we're not, and let's not presume that blood was, um, that somebody drank blood. I don't know that that happened. I don't know that it didn't happen. It wouldn't make sense. Uh, certainly possible given the fact that Damien liked to drink blood, but we don't have any real evidence that he did drink blood at the, at the crime scene, so I'm not suggesting that. Uh, but Jesse wasn't into the, the kind of horrific scene that he was presented with from these other two guys. And seems to have made some attempts to at least mitigate some of the damage, though he did manage to you know, he managed to beat poor little Michael Moore 
to death, essentially, with his hands. So let's not get give Miskelly too much sympathy. But he was being egged on. He was drunk. He's not smart. And he was being egged on by the highly manipulative uh, Damien Eccles. And I would argue the equally manipulative and highly deceptive Jason Baldwin Jr. Uh, Jesse claims he has felt sorry for what has happened and talks as if he wants to testify against the other boys so they will not go free and to help himself. Jesse did say the photograph showed to him was a group picture of the boys riding their bicycles in front of a house. <coughs> in his statement, Muskelly gave details not found in other statements such as smoking marijuana that afternoon or Damien Dominique Jason threesomes at cult meetings. He soon would admit lying about cooking and eating the dog. But the larger narrative about how the attack came about, who attacked and molested the boys, and Miskelly's role in the killings, which he was always anxious to minimize, remained consistent. The false confession defense did not come about because Miskelly said he had been forced into making a false confession, according to uh, Stidham's statements, Dan, defense attorney Dan Stidham's statements in a Rule 37 hearing in 2008. On August 4, 1993, Ron Lax, an investigator who had volunteered his services to the Eccles defense, but he certainly was expecting to get paid, suggested to uh, Dan Stidham and another defense attorney named Greg Crow that Dr. Richard Offshee, I think that's how his name's pronounced, who's a so-called expert on false confessions, was available to testify on brainwashing, police interrogations, and false confessions. At that point, Miskelly's lawyers fixed upon their unsuccessful false confession defense. Stidham said Miskelly first declared he was innocent the next month, around September 21st to the 24th. So he'd gone from June 3rd all the way to September 21st, 24th, not really denying that he was involved in this. When they come up with the Ron Lax comes up with this idea. Hey, we could get this expert to come in and uh, testify that this is a false confession. And then after talking, I, you know, it's not really clear that there was that much interaction between Stid, Stidham and Miskelly between August fourth, nineteen ninety three. It's September 21st, 1993, but at some point along in there, Miskelly was brought to the the idea, he bought the idea that, yeah, let's go with this idea that the police made me do it. But he wasn't talking about that up until then. It was not some sort of immediate re a recanting where somebody says something and then as soon as they get free of the police, the hold of the police, they say, they made me do it, which is very common. It is much more of an argument that it's a false or coerced confession. But when somebody goes on for months and talks to her, their attorney, as Miskelly did, as if they are in fact guilty, 
of the crime to a degree, though not, to, you know, he always wanted to minimize his role, but he admitted he was there. He was talking as if he, to uh, Stidham, as if he was there and as if he was involved in the attacks on the boys. But, you know, so it took him until September before Miskelly finally agreed on the false confessions tactic. But, you know, once that had failed and it failed at trial, what happened on this little trip to prison? Miskelly reverted to making uncoerced confessions of guilt. Very soon he's going to, you know, I'm going to get into this in the next episode. But very right on the heels of this, he's going to give forth with the well-known Bible confession to his defense attorney given with his hand on the Bible. Um, and um, it's a very damning confession that he gives under those circumstances. Confession after that is also very damning. One where he, he where he goes, he's in front of the prosecutors with his attorneys in the room, and he confesses then, and then he describes breaking the Evan Williams bottle, and they go find the Evan Williams bottle shard, and match it up, and it's exactly where Jesse Miskelly Jr. said it was. This was all after he'd been convicted. I'm not really sure you could have, you know, whether they could have gone to court. I guess they could have gone to court with Evan Williams Shard if they'd known about that beforehand and had that detail in his earlier confessions. They probably could have done something with that, but, you know, it wouldn't have been really powerful physical evidence, but it would have been, you know, it would have been some evidence. The fact is, is it's given after the fact, it's a very damning piece of evidence. Maybe not so much legally as in real world, yes, you you broke that bottle under the uh, exactly where you on, on that overpass that underpass exactly where you said it would be, and it was that evening, and you got you were sick about what was going on and you were angry about what was going on, and you were disgusted by what went on, even though you willingly participated in it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very damning bit of evidence. But we're going to get into more of that in the next couple of episodes. I'm glad to have gotten the uh, Miskelly Confessions out of the way. Um, and... That's that's pretty much it for this episode. I don't know how long this is. It seems like it's not that long, but I think it's probably long enough. Uh, there's no reason to think that these deputies did anything to uh, force to force Miskelly to give this confession. I mean, there's no there's never been a suggestion from anybody that they you know. They threatened to pull him out of the car and beat him or, or actually did that or threatened him in any way. It seems like he was just willing to talk, get this off his chest. Uh, you know, we don't have it recorded. I, I still find it a very compelling bit of uh, 
evidence against him. I think any higher court that had been looking at the case for review, uh, including these evidentiary hearings, might well look at this and take that in consideration when they're considering whether he's worthy of a new trial. And he really had no basis. By the time they were going to court in uh, 2011, Skelly really had nothing to go to go to the court with as far as seeking out a new trial. So, of course, he was very willing to take the Alfred plea, plead guilty and get out for time served. It was a, the, a, the deal of a lifetime as far as he's concerned. And, of course, if they'd gone to court, they'd gone to evidentiary court, and the court says, well, okay, there's no, you don't really have any new physical evidence, which actually seems to have been the case, that we'll, we'll never know unless somebody actually pulls out the, what the actual physical evidence is from 2011. But that's none of the responsible parties are willing to do that. Prosecutor doesn't, does, is not able to come up with the information, apparently. The defense is not able to come up with it, is not willing to come up with the information, apparently, or claims they don't have it. So, you know, you sort of have to ask what's going on there. And it has, it has the look of a cover-up. Uh, could be really embarrassing if it turns out, for both sides, if it turns out that the DNA evidence from 2011 shows, oh yeah, Damien, Damien and Jesse and Jason were all, uh, were all there based on DNA. And guess what? The uh, prosecutor... Uh, agreed to a plea deal that let them all out, even though the DNA evidence showed them that they actually showed that they actually committed the uh, crime. Would the DA have the process? He's not a DA; he's a prosecuting attorney. Would Scott Ellington have an incentive to keep the information secret? You're damn right he would. Would the West Memphis Three all have a reason to keep the information secret? Of course they would. And not to go beat a dead horse too much further, but would Bob, did Bob Ruff make any kind of a reasonable effort to try to get that 2011 information? Of course he did not. And nobody else is trying, and, and it's all been uh, wished away. Uh, let's go test it all again. That's, that's not going to be happening. I don't see any way forward on this at all. Um, which is a, sh a shame, really, because uh, I, I have a feeling that if you went back and tested, if they had some massively powerful, and I think uh, the effects of this new DNA collection system may be overstated, but it's still apparently much a much MVAC apparently is a very effective in gathering. DNA evidence. The problem is, is you know, this the, the DNA, the items have been sitting there for, you know, 20-something, 27 years. Uh, who knows who's handled them? Uh, chain of custody is not going to be good. Some items are going to be missing. Some things that we would like to have uh, tested, uh, uh, they would, the stomach contents of the boys is, 
that evidence is already gone. The paper bags where the items were stored were already gone. Who knows? Who knows what was just simply not properly handled at that time? I will give the everybody a, a bit of a pass on that, and that DNA evidence was a, re, a relatively new feature at that time, and uh, it wasn't a priority. Some of these handling procedures were not in place that would be in place now. And which is not to say that things aren't mishandled now, because they are. Anyway, that's enough of that ramble. I'll talk to you again soon.